Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast. Small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson, today with CSC. Hey, CS, how are you? Doing great. How are you, Matt? I am good. So today, we are continuing our conversation on mentorship and menteeship. Uh, But this time, we are talking to younger faculty earlier in their career. Um, I'm excited to continue this conversation. That is so cool. And now we get to hear from people who have been in mentee roles and now are transitioning to mentor roles and kind of how that goes and any resources or tips they wish they would learn. It's a growing process too. Just like when people say your first attending job or your first day, first month is the scariest. So um, hearing them talk about the transition as a mentee to mentor is really neat too. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the most daunting tasks as we kind of continue with our professional career, right? So the clinical stuff, I think we learn really well in training and residency and then fellowship and then maybe an advanced fellowship. But the career aspect, um, we learn it almost by observing and by our mentors um, and becoming that mentor, taking on that role really is a challenge. So I am excited to hear about the two of our guests' experiences, what they've learned, and really kind of how they approach their mentees as new or newer mentors. Exactly. And what they, you know, think went well and what they wish could have gone better. Uh, Lessons to learn from are, I think, really fruitful for us too. So continuing the tradition of our last podcast where we had um, some of the Big time names in Jin Lewis and Lin Chang. I think we have two incredible rock stars today. So the first guest is Dr. Bridgen Shaw. He is an associate professor of medicine, gastroenterology at Mount Sinai in New York. He's also board certified in geriatrics and has a career that is focused not just on clinical medicine, but really on patient safety and quality and medical education, where he spends probably 80% of his time doing admin and educational work. And our second guest is Dr. Lauren Nephew, who is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Indiana University. Uh, she's a transplant hepatologist as well as a physician scientist. So she spends 75% of her time researching on vulnerable population and disparities in the care of patients with uh, liver uh, diseases. So it's really neat to hear from both of them. Completely different career paths, but I have a feeling a lot of what they're going to say is going to kind of line up with each other's thoughts on mentorship and menteeship. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Let's get started with Dr. Shaw and Dr. Nephew. So uh, Lauren, why don't you go first? Do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Lauren Nephew. I am a uh, assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, I am a transplant hepatologist, and so I see patients pre-transplant, and I also see general hepatology patients. Um, but that's technically technically 25% of my role, um, 75% of my role, uh, is, uh, research. And so I do, um, kind of health services and outcomes research, and I study access and barriers to transplant for vulnerable populations and social and structural determinants of health. Awesome. 
Bridgen, you want to introduce yourself as well? Sure. My name is Bridgen Shah. I'm a general gastroenterologist and geriatrician. Um, I see general GI patients who are mostly older, tend to have a patient population that skews in the late 70s or early 80s. And I do that about 20% of my time. And the other 80% of my time is spent um, split between the graduate medical education office. I'm one of the associate deans for GME, uh, focusing on quality and patient safety. And also I'm the vice president for medical affairs for the health system, um, where I engage in quality and patient safety work. Fantastic. So as we start off this conversation about mentorship and menteeship, could you guys give both give us an overview as to the role mentorship played in how your career has developed and kind of how it advocated for you and how it got you where you are right now? So, Lauren, we can start with you again if you want. You know, mentorship was really key for me. And I can say, you know, I realized it was key mostly by the absence of mentorship I had early in my career. And so because I lacked mentorship early, when I gained mentorship, I was able to quickly see how valuable it was. And so as an undergraduate student, I really had very little mentorship, very little kind of guidance or examples of people in my life um, who um, were going into kind of academic medicine. Um, and I got to college and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor since the third grade and I had no idea exactly how to get there. Um, and so I had a really h- tough time in undergraduate school and I kind of had some random kind of college mentors who were just assigned to me, um, but had very little direction about how I actually concretely, what steps I needed to take to prepare for the MCAT and that type of thing. And I didn't have a really good experience. Um, and after that, um, I was still determined and I actually did a post program after I finished medical school. And that's where I really, or after I finished undergrad, um, and that's where I really got a lot of mentorship. And that's where I was like, wow, I mean, this is what this could be like. This is what um, guidance looks like. And so so um, there were a group of people who were able to say, this is what you need to do to get into medical school. These are the steps. This is what you need. Um, these are the letters that you're going to need. These are the experiences that they're going to expect you to have. These are the classes that they're going to want you to, to have. And this is how you are successful. These are the combination of classes that are reasonable for you to take at one time and, and excel. And so for me, that guidance kind of started right after undergrad and it was invaluable. And I really immediately felt and my GPA, my confidence and everything just really changed um, really abruptly um, once I had some idea what I was doing and how to do it. Um, and so uh, I would say that um, the absence of mentorship really wasn't kind of showed me what mentorship could be like. Um, and then just along my career after that, I've, I've been blessed to have uh, good mentors along the way. When I thought I wanted to do IBD <laughs> uh, for a little while, um, I had a great mentor at the Cleveland Clinic. And it, for me, he really just showed me what a clinician scientist looked like. Um, and I did some, it wasn't really about the IBD. It was just about there's people who see patients and who do science and they do both and they enjoy both and their patient population drives their science. And you can, you can kind of set that up. And I was like, wow, okay, I really can do this physician scientist thing. Like people do this and, and I don't have to kind of be a straight PhD. I can actually continue to see patients and do science. And so modeling that for me was, was valuable, even though I didn't end up doing IBD. Um, and I think, um, 
I also have some great sponsors and we can talk about kind of mentorship versus sponsorship, but I also had some folks who kind of said, Hey, you know, you're going to interview at Mass General, you know, let me talk to some folks, you know, you're going to interview at Penn, let me talk to some folks. And um, so I had some great sponsors along the way that not only kind of helped me figure out what you need to do and what steps you need to do, but reached out on my behalf. And so um, those things were valuable for me along the way, I would say. Really like the way that you said it was the absence of mentorship that made you think about that because been sort of now like that's kind of stuck in my head, which is very helpful. Um, for me, I think um, mentorship has been valuable as, as Lauren already mentioned for 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 very similar reasons. I guess my first my first experience with mentorship came towards the junior year of college when I wound up with like a summer research stipend and wound up working with an internist at Brown who. Um, helped me to develop um, just a small like clinical study in the general medicine clinic. You know, it was th- it was doing the work of the project, but then um, our relationship continued and it became about career development and and even just, you know, how do you navigate or kind of manage this whole thing that's like, you know, this whole medical school thing. And the thing that was really great for me was that um, he had also gone to an undergrad where he'd studied liberal arts, which was kind of my undergrad experience. And you know, sort of shared with me his personal experiences about the transition to medical school being very difficult, um, which I definitely, you know, could relate to in my first year. And how do you go from being like this liberal arts person to now being very, very focused on um, on science for two years before you got to the clinical stuff? So that was my first experience of it. During medical school, I took a year out and I was actually in the first Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship class, uh, which I know is an amazing program and so sad to see that it not exists. But I was really excited and really looking forward to it. And I didn't so much have lack of mentorship there, but I had bad mentorship. And, you know, so much so that really helped me to see what went really well in that prior experience and kind of understanding that, oh, that was like really, really good mentorship and coaching and guidance and um, that's not what you're getting for this year. And you got to sort of sort that out. And then I think in my sort of residency fellowship time, the role of mentorship really helped me. I think one, it, it gave me confidence to become a clinician educator. Um, I wasn't the thing that people were sort of rah, rah, very clear about was a way that you could spend time in academic medicine that was viable. And I was just really thankful. I had so many great mentors in residency including our primary care program director, um, who helped to sort of be like, this is a reality, like you can do this. Um, And then having people that supported me in fellowship, you know, I wound up developing some mentorship relationships actually outside of my department, um, one with an attending in general medicine and the other with an attending in geriatrics, who were both well-known clinician educators. And that really helped to give me a lot of um, both guidance and like, how do you actually do this? And then just keeping me kind of grounded and saying, you can this is, this is reality. You don't have to um, find a different path for how you're going to spend your time being a doctor. Um, and then, of course, you know, we'll talk about sponsorship, which I think is, is super important um, in, in many, many different ways. So, Bridget, can you dig a little deeper? You mentioned you had good mentorship and bad mentorship. Can you describe a little bit more for us? Sure. So, right, like I... One number, I was excited because here's this year where I'm not in school. Like, I get to be a regular human being. I moved to Dallas. I'm like, oh, I have an apartment. I've got a car. 
I can like not have to study for a year. And I was like put in a lab and I'd heard, well, my science friends had like their lab experiences and how they loved it. And they're like, there's this PI and then there's this team and it's all so great. And I was expecting all that. And um, the bad part was I was given a lot of tasks without much guidance and I couldn't really figure out how to navigate that. And I, I tried, I tried. Um, and I felt like I was a bit working in, in, in isolation, um, which was hard. Um, I happened to be attached to a lab that was a very basic science lab, but I was coming in to do some database and epidemiologic work. Um, so it was a little bit different from what the group did. Um, and then I think part of, part of what made it a bit challenging is I don't think that the, that the, that the leadership in the lab was used to having people at my stage of development. I don't think they were used to having somebody that had just finished their second year of medical school. And I think that's become a very important point for me, both as a mentor and a mentee, like people can be really great at mentorship and or coaching for a certain part of the developmental cycle, but maybe um, it doesn't work for, for, for each of the different, for each of the different phases. So those were, those were some of the things that made it not so great. <laughs> so I'm curious to both of you. So, you know, we heard about uh, Bridgen's, poor experiences in mentorship and, and good experiences. Lauren, I'm sure you have had bad mentors along the way as well, or absent mentors as you described. In your own practice, as you have evolved from mentees to mentors, and recognizing that we're all mentees, we're all mentors to some extent at, at any given time, what have you guys incorporated into your own practice? What positive things did you see that you have tried to emulate? I think you know, kind of piggybacking off of what you just said, um, I have tried to really identify and try to understand where a mentee is in their kind of developmental cycle, kind of what are, what are they capable of doing? Um, and, and surprisingly, that is not necessarily determined by their level of training. I've worked with MS4s who could we run circles around residents and fellows with their statistics knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with, you know, um, residents who write better than some of my collaborators. So you can't just necessarily judge a, um, a trainee by their kind of love, their, their kind of title or their given level. So I really try to spend some time trying to figure out what their skill set is. Um, and I think that's really important in that kind of first couple of meetings to figure out where they are, what can they do? Um, because I think otherwise you really get into trouble and you both end up um, kind of dissatisfied with the, the relationship and, and um, they can't get what they need and you can't help them get what they need. So I think really establishing their kind of skill level is really important. And that's something I try to do early on because um, I've been in those relationships where it took several weeks for a mentor to realize, hey, you know, I've, I've worked in the basic science lab, but I haven't ever genotyped. You know, you don't want to spend the first four weeks of a 10-week summer program realizing that, you know, you don't know how to set up the PCR mm -hmm. technically. Um, so trying to establish the skill set, I think, is important. And that's something that I try to do. Um, I try to also figure out what it is that they would like to get from me. Mm -hmm. Um, because I find that people come to me because I wear several different hats. You know, I'm a, um, I'm a clinician, um, I'm a researcher and I'm a black woman. 
And so people come to me looking for different things. Some people are like, listen, Dr. Nephew, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this world as a Black woman. Can you help me? And then some people are coming to me and saying, listen, Dr. Nephew, I really want to get in a GI fellowship. Can you help me? And then other people are saying, Dr. Nephew, you do 75% research on you know, disparities work. That seems really cool. I want to do that. Can you help me? And so I don't want to give you a big project to do when you really just want to get an abstract or you really just want to get your feet wet in research so that you can have some experience or you really just want some career advice and some uh, a sounding board for being an underrepresented minority in medicine. So I try to figure out from the get, what is it that you're looking for from me? And then what is your skill set? And then how can we make those two things work together? Oh, I love that. Can you come mentor me? <laughs> um, I... is, that's how I felt every day in fellowship. <laughs> um, I, I, I very much agree with that. Like when you first have that, you know, kind of conversation or you sit down and you meet with somebody um, trying to figure out what is it that they want. And I, I try to also create an environment where, I'd like to say like, okay, whatever, however you wound up getting to me or getting here, like this is an open slate. Like you tell me what you really, like, what is it that you really want? And what are, what can we help you to figure out? Or do you already know what like your passion and your desire is? Right. Cause some people wind up in our offices or, or in an email conversation. Cause it's like, yeah, I know I need to get a GI fellowship or I want a GI fellowship and someone likely not a gastroenterologist had said, these are the 10 things you need to do to get there. Um, and so we need to sort of have that conversation and be like, what is it that you love to do? Right. I don't care what other people said, but what is it you want to do? And am I the person to help you to figure that out or get you there? And if I'm not, that's okay. I can, my job is then to, to get you into somebody's hands that can help you do that. Um, I think one of the things in reflecting on my my many, many wonderful mentorship experiences that I've had that I try to do for others is to appropriately confidence build and really help to, to kind of just reflect back all the great things that they are capable of doing, or I see them do, or they do and they don't realize they're doing. And I'm like, you know, you realize you sent me two pages of writing and I like to edit and I couldn't even find a way to use the track changes button because it was that good. Like, doesn't happen often, but when it does, you're like, I was like, I ooh, you that just gave me chills. I was like, ooh, if that happens. <laughs> I'm like, if that happens, I'm like, I'm coming to your house with guitars. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> and then the other thing is figuring out how to work together. Like, um, I realize I work a certain way. And when I had mentors trying to, I think when I was working with the people I, that were mentoring me, I was trying to intuit how they worked. Um, but increasingly I've been trying to have that conversation at the get-go. And for me as a mentor, trying to become more flexible, working in very different ways. So, um, right. I have some people who I mentor that they are super good with the short, quick, high yield meeting, which is my default, but I have other people who prefer to meet like once a month, one hour, and they'd like to do a lot of stuff sort of collaboratively or electronically not really my comfort zone, but I've tried to figure out how to get there because I think, you know, there probably is a compromise. And um, that's been really, to me, that's been really helpful. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is, um, again, going back to the earlier comment that Lauren made about sponsorship, I mean, figuring out opportunity. 
Um, you know, how in, in, in my professional experience and what I know from talking to others, how can I help to find you or show you things that you, others have not shown or told you about or you don't have any realization of? Because that may spark something that's really exciting in your professional development. I think, Bridget, you were saying about being honest. I really try to encourage the anybody I meet with to just tell me, like, just give me the straight up. Like, I'm not like the fellowship coordinator. I'm not like, you know, I really just want to know what you want. Like, what do you want? Like, do you, are you, what are your goals? Like, be honest. If you really don't like research, but you know that you need to do it, that's fine. I don't like quality improvement projects. I don't love them, but I know I need to do them. I know that they're important. And so I do them. We all do things that we don't love to help our development. And so I don't knock you because you don't love research. You still need this experience and I'll help you, but I'm going to do something different for you than somebody. This is their passion. And so if there's, I, I always, I'm just like, please, please just tell me from the beginning um, because, you know, GI fellowship is competitive. And so, so many people come to you wanting to kind of convince you that they want to be this researcher. And I'm like, don't do that if that's not what you want. You know, don't tell me that. I don't need to know that. <laughs> I don't need to hear that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I guess going along those, those lines, it sounds like when both of you start a mentor-mentee relationship, um, be honest, asking for their goals, how they meet, like to meet or what their style is. Is there anything else that you usually like to tell or ask your mentees when you're starting this relationship to make sure it's successful? I like to get to, I mean, depending on how this relationship or the the connection came to be, I, I just really love to start by just learning who they are. Like, I, I know that that might sound kind of nuts, but it helps me to know a little bit about them, right? Like, where'd you grow up? What do you like to do? How do you spend your time? Right? I'm happy to share that about myself. Um, because I think it just changes. For me, it helps to build, build it builds, to me, it builds trust. It, it also helps to build the relationship. And also then um, it, it starts to make this not transactional. There's definitely a transactional element to both coaching and mentorship. But to me, the special thing about mentorship is that it's a you're building or developing a relationship, um, you know. And and for many people, this will be you know years or decades long relationships. And I sort of realized that to to do that and to feel really good about it, you know, getting to know people, and then it also you know I I want to care about that in in the person I'm mentoring, and I want that to if appropriate, and they feel like that's something that's helpful to bring that into into our into our check ins or our our, our the space. Now, maybe thinking about the flip side, then you guys talked about a lot of things that are good to do, good tips about a mentor and mentee relationship. How about thinking of the not so great ones that you've had in the past? Um, what were some features or things that you wish you or the mentee did differently? Um, just thinking about the things that went sour or didn't really become fruit, uh, fruititious. If that's a word. You know, I... <laughs> I, I understand what you're trying to say. It's a word. Uh, it's a word for yeah. this podcast. Okay. Yeah. I'm totally with you. Or it's a good name for a new gum. <laughs> <laughs> or shampoo. <laughs> you know, I um I am trying to recognize how much um how many touch points different 
mentor mentees need. Um, I am a kind of independent worker. I always say I could have never gotten an MBA because I don't do well with group projects. Um, and I, you know, science is definitely collaborative. And so I've gotten better with kind of working with others, but I'm definitely kind of an independent get into my silo and just kind of work. I'm an only child. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Um, but because of that's my kind of work style, I have to recognize that that's not other people's work style necessarily. They need more touches from me to kind of push the project along or they need more opportunities to ask questions. You know, I may just say, if you're not reaching out, then you don't have any questions and I'm finding that that's not actually true. Um, and so trying to recognize um, when a mentee needs more touch points from me um, is something I'm trying to do better as, 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 a, as a kind of relatively new mentor um, because I've recognized that when I kind of touch back with a, a fellow or a mentee after a month, then they've had questions that have gone unanswered. And I'm like, it's been a month. I can't believe you didn't ask me, you know? Um, and they, and, but they didn't. And so um, I'm trying to be a, um, a mentor that's more sensitive to how many touch points different uh, mentees need um, to kind of keep projects going forward or, um, um, and, and, and things moving. Part of it could be both on the mentee and mentor side, but I I deliberately try to work very, very hard not to get into the space where you're trying to cast or help the person to become you. Um, I've seen that, like, right, I've had fellows come to me or residents come to me and they're working with X, Y, or Z person. And you can totally see that the other person is basically trying to make them a mini-me. Um, and... It's very complicated, I think, as to how people get into that space. But I think actively working to just sort of check yourself on that. I mean, look, if some people are like, I really want to do this and this that you do, like, that's clear. Like, that, that fine. We've had an agreement that that's what you want. I can help you to figure out the road, the, the, the path to get there. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and I think even in being a mentee, being a little bit on the lookout for that. And that's hard. I think that, that I think that's particularly hard um, at the, at the resident medical student fellow level. Cause I think people yeah. are, you know, right. Like impressionable, there's a power dynamic. Um, but as a faculty member, um, I think trying to kind of gauge or assess for that as you're engaging in new or evolving mentor mentorship relationships can be important. I think from a from a thing that I'm trying to work on, um, similar to what um, Lauren was mentioning, I've tried to become better about when somebody does reach out to me or like they've got something for me to review um, and things are crazy or busy as, as, as is apt to happen in all of our lives. Not letting that just sit in my inbox and I know when I'm going to get to it, but I've kind of not told the other person. So um, just being like, to me, that has become like a higher priority item, right? So if somebody I'm mentoring and working on a project on sends me a draft of something, I will write back and I will say, I will not be able to get to this until Sunday or, you know, I'll get this to you by tomorrow um, if I can't get to it that work day, just so that they know where I'm at. And I also... Um, try to be very open and, and, and say, do not bother, do not worry about bothering me. Like text me, pull me aside in the hall, call me, whatever. I have not forgotten you for my lack of interest. It's really that other things distracted me. And so I'm trying to be better about creating, you know, sort of telling people that and trying to, to write back and give them some sort of a time frame. 
that empowerment for the mentee, I think, is so important. I mean, you're, you're, you're putting it back on them a little bit to follow up, which kind of gets to Lauren's point earlier about sometimes the paradynamic causes them to not ask questions because they're worried about what that might mean for whatever reason. But it also allows them to, I think, recognize how much stuff is on your plate, but also know that they can follow up with you just in case something fell through the cracks, which I'm sure all of us recognize happens. Mm-hmm. Now, both of you are uh, early in your career. And I'm very curious about your experience with the evolution from being almost exclusively a mentee to becoming more and more of a mentor in your everyday life. Now, you're both at different points. You both do very different career paths. Um, But you guys kind of mentioned a lot of different – a lot of similar themes in what were effective mentorship relationships for you. So how has it been transitioning into that role? And what have you kind of what have you done as you've taken on mentees? Because I think, especially for junior faculty, this is a real challenge. It is a challenge. Um, and it happens kind of organically. You know, I, as I think back on it, um, you know, there's not just this one day where you just graduate and you get your like mentor cap, but it happens, you know, kind of gradually. And as a fellow, I remember being, and even as a resident, as I decided I was going to pursue this kind of 75% research career, I was definitely afraid that I would never have any research ideas of my own. And I said, you know, I basically worked with a project at Math General that had been kind of created for me. And then I went to Penn and projects had kind of been created for me. And I'm like, how am I going to ever do this on my own? Am I going to be successful? And then at some point, you do kind of develop your own research agenda that really just grows out of doing. The more research you do, the more you recognize the holes in the literature and the gaps in the field, the more you get rejected, honestly, um, papers rejected, the more you realize how you need to modify your research plan, um, the more you apply for grants and kind of get feedback, you kind of figure out what people are looking for in the field and you just kind of morph into this kind of place where you kind of have your own agenda. Whether that's your own clinical research niche, whether that's your own kind of quality improvement niche, or it's your own research um, agenda. And that kind of happens through experience and failures, quite frankly, um, and growth. And as you develop that kind of expertise, you can share that with other people. You can say, hey, I'm going to tell you that's not going to work because it didn't work for me. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you what's going to work. I'm going to tell you that idea has already been done um, because I've already read, you know, 20 papers about it because I finished writing a grant. And you develop this kind of um, area of expertise that people all of a sudden are like, hey, I think she knows something about this. I want to kind of work with her. She's had this experience. She's done these type of database studies and messed them up and had to start all over again. And I can keep that from happening to you. (laughs) Um, And so I think um, it happens kind of organically through experiences and doing and and failing, which is why I like my mentees who really want to, who think they want to do what I want to do to do. I'm kind of a, you know, you go ahead and get started. Here's a data set. Look at it. Play with it. Start doing it because as you fail a little bit, you're going to grow. And so I think that transition kind of happens that at least that's how it kind of happened for me. And of course, I still have mentors Mm -hmm. um, um, who help me to figure out um, 
you know, how to frame some of my ideas so that they're more pitchable and more, um, you know, uh, that, you know, grantsmanship and something like that is always something that you can, um, grow and learn in. Uh, but I've got my kind of own ideas that I come to the table with that have developed that I never, I was very frightened that I wouldn't have, uh, you know, six years ago. We actually talked with, uh, Lynn Chang and Jim Lewis, both who are more senior, uh, in their careers. And, um, I'm sure we would all identify as excellent mentors. And they talked about how they, even as full professors still have mentors that they rely on for this too. So it's clear you're not one or the other. It's not a binary system. You're not. And Jim Lewis told me when I was a fellow, he said, you will have an idea book, Lauren. When you get an idea, you just put it in the book. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I was like an idea book. I don't have one idea. How, why do I need a book? Like, I don't even know, like, why would I need a book? And now I have a book of literally of ideas that I'm just like, if I had enough money and enough, like, capable fellows, look at all the stuff we could do. (laughs) (laughs) Just out of curiosity, is it like a spiral notebook? Is it a marble notebook? It's it's one of those kind of, like, bound notebooks. And then I have a notes list in my phone, which is really kind of... But that's when I'm just literally like, you know, riding in, in the car with my husband. If something comes to my mind, I could just put it in my notes list on my phone. Something very similar, crazy <laughs> educational ideas that maybe one day somebody will actually want to do. <laughs> what about you, Bridget? How has the transition been for you? And, and you're a little later in your career than, than Lauren is here. So um, it's funny you should ask, because this was a topic of conversation during my recent uh, like annual sit down and chat with the chief uh, conversation, who my division chief, Dr. Bruce Sands, has been extremely supportive of my extremely bizarre career, um, right? I can't seem to focus on one thing and sort of dabble in many different pools, but he's been very, very supportive, as have been the people who've mentored me. Um, so I view it, I always viewed it as like, trying to think of a good like visual the visual for me is there's like this bar and you've got like a a slidey thing and how much mentorship you need is on one side and how much how much of the other how much of being a mentor is on the other side and you know I I knew that that little that little game piece would move slowly um and I would say that I'm like split 50 50 like I feel comfortable being a mentor um but 50 percent of me still needs mentorship um, and I keep in touch certainly with some of my core mentors that I, um, that I developed, those relationships I developed in residency and fellowship. His response was, you don't necessarily need mentorship, you need a network. And so I really started to think about that. And while, yes, I do need a network for some things that I do, I'm particularly struggling with um, really needing mentorship in this like hospital administration, educational administration space, because there's there's sort of challenges, there's struggles, there's a career development piece to that, which I don't think is so intuitive, or at least it's not so intuitive to me, um, of how to go forward. Um, And I would love to get some really good mentorship to kind of help me um, with some of those pieces. Um, I've had people in the past and, um, you know, I'm thinking about how to get some of this as it relates to like, you know, work-life balance and you know, how do, how, how do I, as a gay man, try to um, navigate sort of the work-life um, balances and challenges that are going to come for what I anticipate in the next, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years of my life. Um, so that's, that. I feel like I need both, um, but I think it's harder. I also think, and this is where I get um, a little bit jealous of the physician scientists, because I think that in, in that realm, 
it's a little bit more, right? It's a little bit more, the, the path is a little bit more clear and there's an expectation, right? Like you, you had to have it baked in in a lot of these situations as I'm sure Lauren and, and you guys can speak to, right? You needed to get the funding. Like nobody's going to just give you money and if you don't have mentorship. Um, but on the clinician educator side, that's harder, um, right? That that's not, that's not necessary. Although I think most of the people that have had a successful clinician educator career would definitely speak very highly of mentorship and coaching. And I think that this is also really needed on the, on the practice side. Um, you know, when I was, I spent a couple of years at our, um, at our smaller community hospital in Queens and, you know, hired a lot of clinicians and worked with a lot of clinicians and, some of the issues that I was trying to help them solve around, I was like, you know, if they had like a practice mentor, that would really help them as they navigate the growth of their practice and as they see their own career change. And um, sometimes I think that we don't, you know, give that adequate kind of um, thought. And I think helping people to think about them, I mean, the fellows that we graduate that go on to a more practice oriented career as they leave us, um, you know, we, we say like, who's going to be your, who's kind of going to be your practice mentor. Can I, through the AGA, find you somebody who does, you know, who's had a very robust, fulfilling practice career and hook you up with them so that they can talk to you about how to navigate this. Cause there will be, you know, opportunities and challenges like there is in any of these career paths. I think you bring up the important point too, of needing multiple mentors for different yeah. kind of, parts of your career um, and um, not expecting one mentor to be your end all be all um, for everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you have mentors who are really good idea generators, but just aren't, um, you give them a manuscript and they send back a good job and you're like, well, okay. I kind of wanted like some like real concrete, constructive like criticism. And then you have some people going to rip yourself apart. You're like, yes, that's the person I want to send my grant to. <laughs> so at least for me, I actually like that um, a couple weeks before it's due. Um, and then there's some mentors who are good for bouncing off ideas. There's some mentors who are good for navigating, you know, this male dominated specialty as a black woman. And, and they're not even gastroenterologists necessarily who kind of help me as a URM to understand some of those challenges. So, I think you have to recognize what your mentor is good at. Um, and as a, as a mentor, you try to recognize what your strengths are. And you may even point your mentee towards somebody else who can help round out their mentorship team. Um, so I have several um, mentors for different things. Um, it, it's definitely necessary. As you guys became mentors, is there a skill set that you found you needed that you didn't anticipate needing to be an effective mentor that if you, if you looked back and was telling someone, you know what, as you become a mentor, as you progress here, this is the skills that you should really work on. I don't, I don't know that. So I don't know that I deliberately either knew this or could put words to this, but when you asked that question, what came to my mind? So I, for me, I feel more comfortable as a mentor. I felt like I had some growth um, after I finished my formal coursework in my master's program. And so I said, what, what was it? What happened in that that made that change me? And I think that in the work that I did, we spent some time um, learning about, you know, adult development and about coaching and engaging in sort of a more, co- a more like formal coaching relationship and there were things that I learned and practiced in those environments that I now bring to my mentorship that makes me feel more comfortable in my skin as a mentor. Um, so I would say that's things like, you know, really 
effective listening, mm -hmm. um, asking questions that really seeks to understand and really listening to hear and understand who that person is. And I think the other piece is, again, moving away from this kind of my role is as an advice giver. Sure. It's going to happen. You're going to ask me for advice. I'm going to give you advice like that. I'm sure we've all been there, but I think a lot of, a lot of the power in this and the effectiveness really comes from being able to listen and then ask good facilitative questions to get people to explore and get their own answer. And maybe that's because I sort of have really bought into this adult development bend and, and, and that's kind of the, the school of thought from which I kind of learned a lot about education in my master's program. But um, I really view our role as a guide, a facilitator and a supporter um, to help people get to where they want to go. I've tried to be, I don't know that there's like a certain skill set, but the one thing that I, once I realized that there were people here and there reaching out to me, I paused and I said, I want to be intentional about what type of mentor I want to be. Because as a mostly researcher, these things, it just kind of happens. Like people start kind of reaching out to you. People stop you on awards. Medical students might reach out to you and it kind of just happens. The next thing you know, you got an email. The next thing you know, you're like, why don't you work on this? And I would say maybe, you know, a year and a half ago, um, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. I actually have some like mentees. Like, who are they? Like, what do I want to leave with them? What kind of mentor do I want to be? Like, am I doing that? Like what, you know, um, what, what's important to me? Um, carving out time for them, um, meeting with them regularly, trying to, you know, give them constructive feedback, trying to be encouraging, trying to figure out their needs. Like what, like what, what type of mentor do you want to be? Um, and so I think if you don't stop and pause for a second, it'll just kind of slide into your regular kind of workflow and be like a random kind of thing that's happening and it'll get away from you. Um, but if you kind of say, you know how if you, they say that you should, you know, when you start on a service, you should tell the residents kind of what the goals are for mm -hmm. the rotation. And it's, sometimes that feels hokey, but it really does kind of set a standard for everybody as you start. Like, these are my expectations. These, this is when we're going to round. This is when I expect notes to be done and everybody's on the same page. And so I, as a mentor, as I kind of begin, I'm like, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? Um, and so I, I would say that that's probably important to kind of figure out based on your previous mentors, who do you want to be? Uh, what did you like about your mentors? What did you like and how can you be different, better? What do you want to borrow from them? What do you want to leave behind <laughs> and be intentional about it? I really like that. That really, that reminds me of, um, you know, as a clinician educator, we're often asked to write or at least be able to articulate our educational philosophy. And to me, that's a little bit of what you just said. Like, as I think about it for my own self, I'm like, oh, I guess I do. I've developed, you know, at least a little bit of a sense of, you know, what's the, what sort of informs how I engage in mentorship and, 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 yeah. and then that helps to shape the behaviors. Are there certain resources that you found helpful when becoming a mentor or becoming a better mentor or resources that you wish you had? I've read the Met section, which I really like. <laughs> The what? <laughs> the, the Met section in gastro. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And I'm not just saying that because of what we're doing, but it's totally true. Right? So really... <laughs> Bre Bre Bridget, you may have to, based, based on CS's response, you may have to define the Met section for our listenership as well. 
So the MET section is this handy section of gastro called mentorship, education, and training. So there have been a lot of nice short, right, three to four page pieces written by really great people about, you know, how to mentor, you know, a physician scientist or, you know, mentoring or coaching pearls. Um, so that's been really good. Um, I've attended some like local, right, uh, school sponsored uh, mentorship workshops. Some of those are helpful, um, uh, mostly to get me to think about what worked well um, in the past and what would I like to do going forward. And you mentioned that your further training also informed you of your educational style or your teaching style. Like, can you tell us what that is or just how should one discover one's um, mentorship intentions like Lauren are saying or the educational style or mentorship style? So um, my master's was in um, adult, adult, um, adult education or adult learning and leadership. And so I focused a lot on, I'm actually going to focus a lot on the leadership aspect of, of that. So um, studying a lot about emotional intelligence and social intelligence um, and conflict. And so that coupled with the fact that I really view my role as an educator to facilitate adult learning, right? So I'm not, I don't have all the answers for you. Um, and I'm not going to just give you or sort of transfer knowledge to you. My role is to, you know, in my educational hat, set up experiences to help you to discover knowledge and develop skills with some guidance and kind of translate that to the mentorship piece, right? So, you know, we may have a task or a project we're going to work on together. Um, I need to find a way to help you to grow and to have your ideas come forward and then um, really be the barrier remover or try to find resources to help you get done what you need to do or connect you with other people or open up opportunities. That's, that's a bit of, that's a bit of how like I've kind of discovered um, my philosophy. I think part of it has also been listening to other people talk about how they, how they mentor. Um, and I'll, I'll say mentor or coach, cause there's a lot of both there's podcasts and some really good um, books out there that talk about the coaching aspect um, and I think it's just been helpful to hear how um, people who kind of professionally coach, um, like executive coach or coach teams in organizations, do that um, and, 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 and what their philosophy has been. So as we wind down, what would you leave or what advice do you give to young faculty or trainees that's the best advice you got as you developed your career? That's hard. That's a hard question. The best advice I was given kind of starting my career is a little different than where I thought you were going. Um, because the best advice that I can give as a mentee who's now starting to be a mentor is to actually use your mentor. I know that sounds kind of basic, but um, be in regular contact with your mentor develop a relationship with your mentor, set up a regular schedule meeting, meeting even if you haven't quite met the research timeline that you all had. Um, just regularly touch base with that person, um, even if it's just for a 15-minute Zoom, um, because they likely have something that they can teach you, show you. They may have other projects that they're working on that they can bring you in on if they hadn't even realized. They want to hear how you're doing, um, how things are going clinically, how things are going in your life. Is All of that's important to your career development. Um, and that's something I haven't done well as a mentee, and I'm starting to do that better. Uh, like I said, I tend to be pretty independent, but that's really 
that's not a, necessarily a good kind of team player or a good networking style. And especially for my my URM um, kind of uh, folks and listeners, it's really important to try to just in, to, to just, you know, be engaged and with your mentor and kind of really kind of to just continue and establish that relationship. Because I think sponsorship opportunities um, come out of those relationships that need to be built and need to be cultivated. Um, and so just spend some time um, doing that and being purposeful about it. Um, even if your mentor seems to be uh, falling off a little bit, take the initiative to kind of schedule those regular interactions so you can be in their face on the top of their mind when opportunities become available. I agree with what Lauren just said. I think that that time, um, and I think as a mentee, it seems like you're bothering somebody or, you know, um, you know, it seems like you're burdening the other person, but I think, um, like Lauren mentioned, I think, I think they do genuinely want to hear from you. I think they want to hear how you're doing, right. They've invested in you. And I think they want, they want to be very supportive. Um, it also moves this again from being very transactional, right. Um, I think sometimes, the mentees think that it's all about the task at hand. And actually, I think we all like having conversations where, you know, there's not so much task that needs to get taken care of. And I'll say as a mentor, and I've had this experience very pleasantly in the last couple of months, where some of the best things in my day have been the 30-minute kind of mentor-mentee discussions where we didn't really have a ton of like stuff to do. But it was really just a 30 minute time to like learn more about them or hear where they're at at this point in time and, you know, be able to, you know, meet a need or to be supportive. Um, so that's been that's been really that's been really great. Um, and I've you know, I've watched, you know, definitely um, my mentors like, you know, Dr. Susie Rose do that for me. And that's been really, really important. I think to your question about what did somebody tell me early in my career um, and I'll say that this holds true, particularly for those people who want to do, you know, if, they, if you want a career like in, as a clinician educator or in quality and patient safety, I would say keeping more irons in the fire at the beginning, as long as you can manage it, is completely okay. Because had I not done that, I would have missed out on some really, really both fun opportunities, but also really, you know, amazing growth opportunities in both the educational side of things and on the quality and patient safety side. And so I think it works really well for people that are sort of going into those streams, possibly even um, in terms of a practice a practice career too. One of the best pieces of advice I just thought of as you were saying that, that I think um, Jim Lewis gave me was as a researcher was to have um, multiple crops that are coming to kind of harvest at different times. You know, you don't work on one project and just kind of, you know, push through. You know, you're planting different crops, right? You're starting a meta-analysis that's going to come up in the spring. You've got a, a chart review that's going to come up in, you know, the winter. And then you've got this long-term project, this prospective cohort study that's going to take five years to get done. And if you constantly kind of have crops that are just planted at different seasons, then, you know, after a few years of farming, you're going to always have something coming up. You know, you're going to have something coming up every crop season. And so um, that was something that Jim Lewis said to me. And again, when he said it, I was like, yeah, but Jim, I don't have one crop. I don't have a soybean. I don't have anything. Right. Um, but now um, now it makes sense to me um, that, you know, I try to, you know, you know, it, it, there's a balance. Right. If you just you don't want to overrun your farm, but 
you definitely, you know, a good farmer has, you know, several different crops that become available at different times. And that allows you to constantly have something kind of ready to write, then something that's in analysis phase, and then something is in the kind of IRB phase. Um, and so you're constantly kind of moving things forward, and you don't have this big kind of dearth of period with nothing to publish. So I think that was probably <laughs> a really good piece of advice that he gave me that now makes sense to me. I love that metaphor. <laughs> yeah. That is so good. And then it's one Jim day, Lewis. It's Jim Lewis. That's awesome. <laughs> and then one day the, the, the mentee comes and wants to plant their own crop. And you're like, hey, cool. We got room for right. that. If people listening to the podcast want to engage with you guys, I know you're both on social media. Do you mind throwing out your Twitter handles? Uh, yeah, I'm at Lauren Nephew MD. And I'm at Brownbridge76 because I didn't really know how to create something that couldn't seem like an AOL handle from the 90s. <laughs> Definitely also your AIM message. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thank, Thank you for, for having, having me. me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the AGA podcast. Small talk, big topics. That's it, guys. That is the end of season one. Lauren Nephew, Bridget and Shaw, bringing it to a close with us for just an awesome experience. Thank you to all our guests. Thank you to my co-host, CS and Nina. Thank you to the AGA. It has been a wonderful ride. And thank you to you, the listeners. So if you want to hear anything you want to learn about a specific topic, you want to hear from a specific gastroenterologist, if there's something you think would be a great topic for our podcast, please reach out to us. You can email us at agapodcast at gastro.org, and you can hit all of us up on Twitter. Thanks again. We look forward to seeing you for season two and uh, maybe a bonus episode or two before we kick things off in summer 2021. Thanks, y'all. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.